Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 119. We are in, uh, beginning in verse 41, the, uh, the words that begin with the letter Vav. Um, our Hebrew letters come to us through the German language, so the W's in W-A-W are actually V's. So that's why I say Vav and not, you know, Wa. But uh, as we consider these words today, let us come before the, the Scripture with a humble and a holy heart. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame, for I delight in your commands because I love them. I, lift, I will lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. Let us pray. O Lord, who is enthroned in heaven above, you have shown us your unfailing love in the work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. By your Holy Spirit, draw us to you and help us to find hope and peace in your presence. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my background, for, as many of you know, my background is in management and sales. And I have to tell you, I, I preferred the management aspect of my background much more than I did the sales aspect of my background. I, I really struggled in sales. Well, let me just say, let me narrow that down. I I struggled in two aspects of sales, the, the cold calling for an appointment and the, the closing asking for money at the end of the sale. And honestly, if, if you just give information without the appointment and without asking for the money at the end of the sale, well, you've just kind of talked to an empty room. Why the fear for me in those areas? My first sales job was a three-week stint trying to make a appointments to sell pre-need funeral arrangements. Actually, my job was to sell pre-need funeral arrangements, but I really struggled with the fact that I never made any appointments to actually sell them. I would sit in front of a computer that would automatically dial its way through the phone book of, of Hillsborough County, Florida. If someone happened to answer the phone, their name and a script would pop up on the screen, and I would run through the spiel and ask for a point, an appointment. The end for me came when the person who answered the phone at the end told me at the end of my spiel that he was in his teens. Now, I swear he sounded like an adult, but he says, look, I'm 15 years old. And what do you know about my mom and dad that I don't know? <laughs> I promptly hung up, logged out of the computer, put my headphones on the desk and walked into my manager's office. And the fear was there because I wanted a guarantee that they could not give me. They told me that for every hundred people I would talk to on the dialer, I would make 10 appointments. And for every 10 appointments, I might make one sale. And after three weeks, I had not even made an appointment. In our passage today, the psalmist is crying out to God because he because there is a guarantee. God has made promises to the psalmist and in his faithful love, 
will bring the rescue to the psalmist that he desires. That's the promise that God has made. And because God is a God who keeps his promises, you and I are called to fear God rather than man. Now, this this section of Psalm 119 opens with a cry from the psalmist that the unfailing love of God, the salvation that God has promised, would come to the psalmist. Now, this combination of words, unfailing love and come to me, is a combination that puts us in the idea of promises made and promises kept. God promises in the Old Testament that he will come upon the nations in judgment. He promises that he will come to Mount Sinai in all of his power. And he promises that he will come to the rescue of Israel in might and in glory. And in many ways, he kept all of those promises. But here the psalmist asks for God's unfailing love. What is God's unfailing love? Some of your translations in that first verse may say that the psalmist asks for God's mercy or steadfast love. And and this idea of unfailing love, of mercy, of steadfast love gives us a sense of the range of meaning of this particular word. This is the word, and you know, I don't typically give you Hebrew words, but this one's kind of fun to say. But this is the word chesed. You kind of get the, your, your throat ready like you're getting ready to expectorate or spit something out. And at the end of it, you say esed. So this is the word chesed. And it's related to God's love and his mercy that he shows to people in response to the promises that he has made in his covenants with his people. It promises mercy. It promises steadfast love. It promises unfailing love within the covenant and God as a promise keeping God will answer his people as they pray according to his promises and God has promised in his covenant to his people that he will bring salvation that he will bring rescue to his people when they most desperately need it we've seen in the previous section that God promised rescue the psalmist asked for rescue from his own wavering and fickle heart. In other sections, we have seen the persecution that the psalmist has desired rescued from, which is the category that we will look at today. We've also seen the psalmist ask for rescue and salvation from the deep sadness that he feels as he lives and moves in this world. But the psalmist roots his request for God's salvation, for God's rescue in the fact that God has promised salvation and rescue for his people. And God is a promise keeping God. How often do you and I root our prayers in the promises of God? You know, we pray for healing. But do we pray for healing because and reminding God that he has promised to bring his healing to his people? We pray for peace in this world, but do we pray for peace because God has promised to bring peace into this world. We pray for the salvation of our family and friends, but do we root that prayer for salvation in the fact that God has promised that he delights in the rescue and the salvation of sinners? God has promised lots of things to his people. Those promises are rooted in who he is as a God of unfailing love, as a God who never changes, 
as a God who is faithful and trustworthy. And in that unfailing love, he has promised to provide rescue for his people. Do we root our prayers to God in the fact that he has promised to answer them? We remind God of his promises, not because God forgets. We know that God is omniscient. He knows all things. And when he proclaims something that he has not forgotten it. But we remind God that we seek his face because he has promised to be gracious to his people. That should also shape what we pray for, brothers and sisters. As the old country song said, God has not promised us a rose garden. But he has promised to see us through the valley of the shadow of death. He has promised to see us through the difficulties and obstacles of this world. And he has promised to be faithful to us as the faithful shepherd throughout all aspects of our life. And so our prayers should be shaped by the promises and the revelation of God. Now, the psalmist is not just seeking general rescue, general love in his life. There is a specific situation that he seeks refuge, rescue from. And that is the insults of those who taunt him. He says in verse 30, in verse 42, he says, verse 41, he says, Lord, when you come to me with your rescue, with your unfailing love, then I will answer the one who taunts me for I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my, from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your word. God promises that he will answer, you, answer the persecutors of his people, those who taunt them, those who insult them, those who attack them both verbally and physically. And we see the rescue work out in two ways as God answers them according to his purpose. First, the taunts and the jeers of God's enemies are answered with the good news of salvation. In Mark 15, 39, a Roman centurion who witnessed the death of Jesus and likely just because of where he was there near the cross, likely took part in the torture and verbal abuse that Jesus took, looks up as Jesus dies and declares, truly, this man was the son of God. What a glorious statement. Seeing the death of Jesus and all the events that surrounded it with the darkness coming, with hearing of the temple curtain being torn in two from top to bottom, all of this brought this man to the declaration that Jesus was the Son of God. God's good news of redemption and salvation can change even the hardest of hearts. We've been studying the book of Romans Paul's story in the book of Acts as he pursued the persecution and destruction of God's church, and yet then he became the instrument that God used to move the church into most of the known world at the time. You and I do not give the gospel enough credit. You and I don't believe in the heart-changing power of the Holy Spirit, so oftentimes we keep our mouths shut. The psalmist prayer in verse 43 is don't snatch the word of truth from my mouth. In the face of taunts and insults, my temptation, says the psalmist, is to shut my mouth and keep quiet. And he prays, let me be bold in the face of the persecution. In our scripture reading from John earlier, Jesus promised that one of the works of the Holy Spirit would be, would be to give you the words to say when you needed to say them. First, he will teach you the words, then he will recall them to memory when it is time to speak them 
And notice the order there. Jesus said he teaches you the words and then he will give you the words. Without the study and meditation and delight and longing for God's word that the psalmist speaks of and prays for in the rest of the psalm, the Holy Spirit has nothing to work with. And so we must internalize the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can bring them to mind when necessary. When we go into situations where we can speak God's truth and those situations are fearful, we can pray like the psalmist here, like Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter one and two. We can pray that God make us speak because he has promised to do that very thing. So the the first way the taunts and jeers are answered by God's word is through God changing their hearts and lives through salvation. And secondly, the taunts and jeers of God's enemies are silenced in his future promises. In our study last year, the book of Revelation, we learned that those who are rebellious and are persecutors of God's people will find themselves in the hands of an angry God if they do not repent. The psalmist takes confidence in the words of God and hopes in God's instructions because they tell him that those who hate God and those who hate God's people will find judgment when God returns. The scriptures don't merely reveal how you are to live. They reveal the hope that you have in God's trustworthy promises. The sins of those who hate God and who hate God's people will be punished either on the cross as they come to God in repentance or in eternity. The psalmist realizes that because God promises to come to him in rescue, he, and in him being bold, we can be bold as well in the face of persecution and insult. So the psalmist has prayed to God, come to me in your unfailing love. Bring your salvation according to your promise so that I can be bold in the face of taunts and insults. And then the psalmist says how he will respond to God's arrival. His first response in verse 44 is that he declares that he will be always obedient forever and ever. In our passage from John earlier, Jesus opens up with this declaration. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He said later on in the passage that if you don't love me, you won't obey me. When God shows his love to you, the only proper response is your obedience. Many people claim to be Christians, but they have no desire to obey the commands of God or they obey for a little while and then go back to their own sinful and selfish life. And notice that the psalmist multiplies his words in this particular verse, he, he starts out by saying, I will always obey your law. Then he says, I will always obey your law forever. And then he says, I will always obey your law forever and ever. How much of the psalmist's life is he dedicating to the obedience to God's law? All of it, every moment, forever and ever. The psalmist just multiplies these words that we wonder why. Okay, always should cover it. I'm going to always obey God. That that includes every moment of my life now and every moment of my life into eternity. But he goes on and he strengthens the statement by saying, I will always obey forever. Well, that covers it, doesn't it? Well, apparently not, because he says, I will obey forever, always obey forever, forever. 
And so he reminds us that as we live our life into eternity, we will not only seek to obey him here, but we will be successful in obeying him forever and ever. Secondly, the assurance that God will provide rescue for the psalmist. The psalmist says that he will be free in his life. I will walk about in freedom, verse 35 or 45 says, for I have sought out your precepts. Remember all these words that we have here, promise, word, instruction, precept, decree, commands. All of these things refer to the revealed word of God, which includes his law. Do you think about the fact that the law brings freedom or do you think the law brings the opposite of freedom? It brings imprisonment. Let me ask you a question. What would happen if you are in a large and busy city and you approach a four way intersection of two very busy multi-lane highways? And as you came to that intersection, there was no traffic light, no stop sign or anything you would likely freeze up in fear, not knowing if it's okay for you to go. And yet as we approach intersections in our world, because there are traffic management systems there and traffic laws, you can go about your day in freedom, reasonably free from the fear and bondage of not knowing who should proceed and when it's safe to go. God's law works in a similar way. Adam and Eve were given everything they needed for life and for obedience in the Garden of Eden. They were free to honor and glorify God as long as they did exactly what he told them to do. But then the serpent comes in and he deceives them by saying, you know, God's hiding things from you. He knows you can be just like him and he doesn't want you to be that way. And so they get, they receive by disobeying, disobeying God's law, they receive a knowledge that they could not handle. A fuller knowledge of what is right and wrong, not a full knowledge of what is right and wrong, because only God has that. But the knowledge of what was right and wrong was something they could not handle because it then clouds the definition of freedom and the definition of slavery. Instead of pursuing God's obedience and finding freedom in that, they are now pursuing their passions and appetites and being slaves to those passions and appetites. You and I think we have been promised great freedom if we abandon the law of God. And yet doing that only brings bondage. Bondage to our passions, bondage to our appetites. So he says that he will be free. He says that he will obey. In verse 46, he declares that he will teach God's statutes before kings and not be ashamed. Notice he asks God in verse 43, do not snatch the word of God from my mouth. And then in verse 46, he says, I will proclaim your statutes before kings. There's an interesting aspect to the Psalms that oftentimes we overlook as we go through them. I always thought it was just a, th- a thing that happened within some of the Psalms of lament, but it, it really happens throughout most of the Psalms. There's an aspect of every Psalm, almost every Psalm where the psalmist says, I will proclaim. If it's a Psalm of lament where God, where the psalmist is asking God to come and as the psalmist is here, rescue him from some situation that's bringing distress or sadness into his life. One of the responses is I will go and tell the congregation. I will go tell everybody I meet how you came and met me in the deepest, darkest 
of moments. There is a proclamation that should follow God's answering of prayer. When God answers your prayers for healing, do you give glory to God before the doctors and before the nurses? I know most of the time when we get healing that we have prayed for, it comes through medication, it comes through surgeries. But do you understand that if God had not made and created the human mind the way he did and the earth and the world the way he did with the resources, those things would be well beyond our grasp. And yet because God has given us the intelligence and the creativity to think about ways to replace a knee joint, or a hip joint, or even a shoulder joint, as complex as the shoulder is. We can give glory to God when doctors are successful in bringing healing to us. When you have prayed for a healed relationship and God brings peace into that relationship, do you proclaim the healing peace that God brings to those? Do you proclaim that healing peace to those who will listen? Most importantly, brothers and sisters, when God hears your prayers of repentance, and set you up as his child through the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You proclaim the news of salvation through Jesus to anybody who will listen. You and I carry a message of glorious grace and forgiveness. We carry a message of salvation from hell and from the wrath of God. And if you're anything like me, you're tempted to keep it to yourself most of the time. We, are, we may not be called to stand before kings and princes, but each of us has a family that needs to hear the good news. Each of us has friends that need to ha- hear the good news. Each of us has acquaintances that need to hear the good news of salvation through God's gracious work. And lastly, the psalmist says in verse 48, I will lift up my hands to your commands, which I love and meditate on your decrees. One of the commentaries I consulted for this week says I will says that this verse is a declaration that I will prayerfully direct my heart to keeping and learning your commandments. There, as the two disciples in Luke chapter 24 are, are leaving Jerusalem downhearted and dejected, Christ has been crucified. And the women have come to the disciples and said, the tomb's empty and we don't know where he is. And they have some of them have abandoned Jerusalem and they're on their way to another city, downhearted and dejected. And Jesus, veiled in his appearance, comes to them and begins to talk to them and begins to explain why the Messiah had to die. Why going through the Old Testament, how salvation comes through a Messiah that died. And once he is revealed to their eyes and they realize who he was, they say, didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened and expounded the law? Does your heart burn when you study and hear the word preached? Is there a desire to come humbly before the word because it is the word of God? We don't worship the word, but we worship the God that the word reveals to us. And if it were not for the word, we would know nothing of salvation. We would know nothing of the pursuit of holiness. We would know nothing of the glory of our triune God. And so as you come to the word, does your heart burn with a passion to learn more and more so that you can then know and love your God more and more. 
The psalmist says, as you come to me in rescue, I will come to your word with a burning passion that shows itself in obedience and meditation. And so the psalmist asked God to come to him in rescue. And he says, in response to your rescue, I will obey. I will walk about in freedom. I will proclaim your good news and I will have a burning passion for your word. I ended up in sales because honestly, I'd been laid off from my first management job. I'd been out of work for three months and I was desperate when I took that pre-need funeral arrangement job. Our savings had come close to running out. My family needed a roof over their head and they kind of like to eat on a regular basis. As I walked into the manager's office that day, I was downhearted. I wanted to cry. I felt like I had failed again. And the manager looked at me and he goes, you're done, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, sit down. Let's talk. He said one of the greatest things to me I think has ever been said to me within a business context. He said, I knew from day one, and this isn't the great part, by the way. He said, I knew from day one that you were going to absolutely fail in this job. He said, but it's this job that you're going to fail at, not sales in general. He said, you've got it in you to be a good salesperson. This is the good part. And he gave me a list of things to look for in a sales job to kind of set me up for success wherever I went. And it took me getting several years beyond the situation, looking back on life to realize that really I had been looking for the guarantee in the wrong place. I did end up with another sales job. The bills did get paid. The food was put on the table. I was moderately successful selling pest control and termite control rather than funeral arrangements. It's easier to give the bugs the funeral rather than, you know, people. But as I look back on it after several years, I realized that I wanted guaranteed leads. I wanted guaranteed percentages on the number of sales I would close, and I wanted to be guaranteed that I could do all that with the least amount of effort. I was looking for the wrong guarantees. God never never guaranteed me that I would stay at overnight transportation until I retired. God never guaranteed me that I would be a successful salesperson. God never guaranteed me that I would be a successful manager. What God promised was that he would save me if I repented and that he would take care of me and my family, even though sometimes it felt like he wasn't. Living with the taunts and jeers of those who are antagonistic against the gospel is the same way. God doesn't promise that this Christian life will be an easy life. God doesn't promise that if you have enough faith, Life will be all roses and easy. But what God does promise is that he will bring you salvation from your sin and that he will ultimately show up for you as your savior, as your rescuer in those difficult times. That rescue may come in the form of the right words to say at the right time. That rescue may come, for some Christians around the world, that rescue may come through what we think from an earthly standpoint is a sped up meeting with Jesus as persecution becomes fatal. God will rescue his people. 
God loves his people and will come to them when they cry out to him in his way and in his timing. And because we know that he is faithful and because we know that he answers prayer and rescues his people, we can pursue obedience and freedom. And we can proclaim God's word with a passion that shines brightly in this sin-darkened world. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for these words of promise. We thank you that you hear, that you respond, that you are always near, and that you rescue your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And as you go this week, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.